The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. The one who speaks, because especially, I don't have the material up here, especially if you look in chapter 12, uh, this statement that we're looking at in verse 25 follows right on a reference in verse 24 to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, which speaks, the blood that speaks better than that of Abel. Better than Abel. So uh, involved here in the one who speak is speaking is 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 the new covenant speech as that has central to it the sacrifice of Christ and more broadly uh, the one who speaks would take us back to the very opening words. God has in these last days spoken to us in His Son. Uh, and particularly to three, tells us that the uh, speaks there of the salvation which began to be spoken, the salvation which began to be spoken. So now, uh, to sum up here, as as to advantage, uh, actually this not only to sum up but to bring in a, a few other considerations round off our discussion, uh, looking at other passages, we can identify the people in these verses as those who have made a Christian confession. They have made Christian confession. As there is reference to that idea of confession in 3.1, uh, Jesus, the high priest and apostle of our confession, uh, 4.14 then and 10.23, uh, our exhortation to hold fast our confession. So they are, what we have to do with here are people who have made a Christian confession and so in some sense, as Christian confessors, in some sense they have a genuine experience of the benefits of the covenant. Or um, uh, to put it most circumspectly, but, uh, but it has to at least be put this way, these, we have here, Confessing Christians in these passages who have some sort of positive association with the benefits of the covenant, a positive uh, experience of some, uh, of some sort of the blessings that are promised in the gospel. I think it has to be put um, um, in, in those terms and, and no lower, as it were. Otherwise, I think we begin to, to back away from, from what the text has said. So, um, the dilemma, if you've never thought about these passages much before, the dilemma perhaps begins to uh, build a bit. Now. now, those are the advantages. Let's notice, uh, secondly, how the subjects in these passages, what is their response to the advantage? 
How do they respond to the advantage? Well, let's look at 6, 4 through 6, first of all. Um, the key or, or the initial indication is in what in effect now is a fifth um, participle connected by the chi syntactically going back to the tus. So those who among other things coming to verse 5 and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age have come and have fallen away and have fallen away so while it's, uh, it's syntactically uh, parallel, uh, clearly, semantically, logically, there's a different force here. That, by, that, by the way, is um, a good general principle we need always to be reminded of. Uh, don't fall into the trap exegetically of, of equating syntax and semantics. Um, this would be a good example. So that, for instance, um, the New American Standard, I think, when it translates here, says, it, it, it adds the idea, and then, after all this, and then fall away. And the NIV uh, changes the force and, and uh, brings out the, 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 the semantic uh, dis, disjunction or distinction, distinction here, uh, if they fall away, if they fall away. Now, the falling away, then, is further amplified and is seen to consist in what is expressed by the two remaining participles. If you're ever giving a, a Greek test to anyone and you want to get them parsing participles, you just have to give them um, these verses. Um, now, again, taking these as... Um, as the, uh, as the objects of, a, of an impersonal, it is impossible to renew again to repentance. Uh, these are not now in parallel syntactically. They don't share the tus, but they are now um, truly uh, predicatively placed, adverbial in their force. And they uh, expound on, as they go back and, and modify the paraposontas, uh, they amplify what that falling away involves. First, it's a re-crucifying the Son of God to themselves, and secondly, um, making public sport, public display, exposing to open disgrace the Son of God. So the Son of God is the common direct object of these two um, participles. So, I think we now can observe, all told, that what we have here, uh, as we just uh, brought the notion of Christian confession into the picture, what's described here is an abandonment of confession, uh, the renunciation of a previously made Christian confession. What is being described here is a rejection of the Son of God after having once confessed Him to be the Son of God. It's a withdrawing 
drawing back from the Son of God so that like uh, the Jews, we can say, to bring in the, um, the, the, the gospel narrative material, uh, these now regard Jesus as worthy of death. Seems to me that that is involved in this notion of re-crucifying, uh, worthy of death. And they regard him as worthy of death, treat him with contempt. And the suggestion seems to be here, open contempt. And, and certainly implied through all this is that this repudiation is, is, is not something that uh, uh, has just happened or is sort of uncalculated, but it is more or less willful, a more or less deliberate um, um, ongoing, certainly durative type of thing, because now we have a present uh, participles. The notion of willfulness will come out in the other passages at any rate. Looking in chapter 10 at the response. The response comes out at the beginning of the construction. It's a matter of willful sinning. And here uh, we need to appreciate the use of the present participle. They go on sinning willfully. This is characteristic. Uh, further, this blood of the covenant they consider to be koinon. Uh, common, but not just com common in the sense of unholy, and, and probably the thought here, uh, the blood of the covenant is now um, um, considered um, is considered to be unholy in the sense that it it, it is ineffective. It, it's unholy. It's common in the sense that it does not separate from sin. That it is ineffective or non-efficacious. And the use of the aorist participle now uh, perhaps carries with it the nuance that this is a, this is a settled regard. This is how they have, have come to view things. And then we're told thirdly uh, that uh, they insult this is a very strong um, verb used here. They insult the spirit of grace. And you can see how that is very close to the idea of the, of the, of, of the uh, open disregard or mockery back in, in, in chapter 6. So here now, certainly, uh, a contempt that is quite conscious and deliberate uh, is is being uh, plainly expressed. Conscious, deliberate contempt. And then to look at the uh, chapter, uh, the passage in chapter 15, excuse me, chapter 12, at verse 14, or beginning in verse 15, really. Um, 
the response for one is that of coming short of the grace of God with which we can uh, connect what Paul has to say in Galatians 5.4. You have fallen from grace, those who are seeking to be justified um, by being circumcised. Um, Further, there's an indication here that that, uh, the response is one that involves the, the growth of this what he describes uh, a root, a root of bitterness, a certain root of bitterness, uh, with the consequence of that root of bitterness being trouble, and trouble that spreads, defiles many. So what uh, we can say here in, in, a, in a more modern um, idiom to try to get at this. Um, uh, their response is one that has a cancerous uh, effect in the life uh, of the church. And it's exemplified, you see here, in the case of Esau, who is mentioned in verses 16 and 17. Exemplified particularly in his rejection of covenant privilege. His... Um, his uh, willful uh, rejection of the rights of the firstborn. And the idea of rejection comes out further in verse 25 as a rejection. The response is rejection of the one God who speaks. So, if we were to sum up now, I'll try to capture in a, in a statement or so by way of, of, of uh, getting um, the whole picture before us as to the response. We could say that what we have described in these verses is an is a abandonment of previously made Christian confession. An abandonment of Christian confession that is appears to be, at least in most instances, open and calculated. Now, the example of Esau is, um, is, is interesting here because it, it strikes me, particularly when you look at the Old Testament narrative, uh, it, it seemed to have been more of a passionate uh, or uh, on-the-spur uh, response rather than calculated. But um, at least the accent in these passages is, it appears to be on, on the calculated. Um, it is, again, uh, to put it another way, what we have described here, The response is one of the rejection of the benefits of the covenant, the rejection of the benefits of the gospel, as that covenant, that gospel, has been previously accepted and in some some sense experienced. So we have, um, so far as the situation in view, we have the advantages, the responses, or the response, and now the outcome. The outcome. 
let's, let, uh, we can try to uh, just pinpoint um, the outcome in, in the three passages. In the chapter 6 passage, um, the outcome is impossibility of renewal leading to repentance. Renewal as it would lead to repentance. So, uh, an impossibility of repentance. By the way, it just struck me um, um, as I was working through this material uh, again, uh, notice in verse 6 sort of the, the trade-off on the ana uh, prepositions uh, or, or pre- um, prefixes uh, because they re-crucify Christ uh, there is no possibility of renewal uh, seems, seems to be a, a nuance so there's the impossibility of renewal uh, and here we should point out in, 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 the, in the construction and the syntax. Notice the location of the adunatone, uh, given uh, certainly deliberately here a position of prominence. Syntactically, this is where the emphasis lies. There'd be many other ways of configuring this passage. Uh, the adunaton could have been uh, tucked away somewhere mid-construction. Uh, but uh, it, it, it's, it's putting it at that position heightens it. Um, as, as a flag to catch uh, our attention. Syntactically, it connects, you see, directly with Halen Anakainitza. It is impossible to renew again to repentance. Yes? Well, I wa- really, I wanted to leave that open. I, I've, I have wanted to say, I've, I've used circumscri- uh, circumspect language. Uh, I did not want to limit it, limit it merely to a, 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 some sort of sacramental contact in the sense of you know, some, some um, you know, going, in, being form, involved in formal worship and receiving sacraments, that that's all that's involved. Um, it's more than that, but I, I, so far, um, I, I want to keep, in a sense, the question you're raising in abeyance for a while yet. I want to come back to that. But I, I, what I wanted to affirm is that there is a very definite positive association, um, a real connection in some way with the benefits, the blessings described. Um, And I guess, um, again, this is where context comes in. Um, I, um, I understand myself to be lecturing probably for the most part to convinced Calvinists and I want those of us who are convinced Calvinists to feel the weight of these passages, which have, I think, uh, occasionally been swept aside uh, too facilely. Yes? I remember that you were going to come Hang on to that question. I like the way you posed it, though. I mean, I think it, it, it really gets the focus on, on things. Yes? Yeah. All right. Um, so the, 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 uh, the impossibility is, um, is expressed here in 6. Now in 10, we don't um, have the explicit category of, of impossibility, but it's uh, in the same 
uh, certainly the same tenor or tone. Verse 26, we're told a no longer, no more sacrifice for sins. And that probably connects in the writer's mind with, with regarding the blood of the covenant as, as common in the sense of unholy or unsanctifying. They consider the blood with which they were sanctified as unsanctifying. So there is no um, sacrifice for sin. And uh, then verse um, 27, uh, a fearful expectation of judgment and so on. Then um, there also is in, uh, we should give a little more attention to this now in this chapter 10 passage, there's a, a so-called a fortiori argument that the writer likes to use in another in a number of places before the between uh, arguing from what is true if something is true in the old then how much more must it be the case in the new uh, here he, he brings out you see the negative side of that already back in chapter 2 3 uh, he's asked using that form of argument how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation and in, in, in that same vein now uh, uh, somewhat more emphatically uh, he talks about the greater punishment. Um, the greater punishment that is commensurate with rejecting what are certainly the better, excuse me, the worst punishment. Let's translate this not so much greater, but worse. The worst punishment that is appropriate, commensurate with the, with the rejected punishment better blessing, the better blessings of the covenant, new covenant that are rejected in relationship, uh, as that then stands in relationship to the old, to the law of Moses, as it's mentioned in verse 28. Um, what the writer is saying here, it seems to me then, that under the old covenant, we have the cutting off from the covenant. But now he wants to bring into view a cutting off that is even worse something that is even worse than the cutting off experience under the old. Or again, when you look, um, oh, so there, um, that dimension. Now, in chapter 12, the outcome here is stated flatly um, that Esau, when he sought repentance, was rejected. Was rejected. Now, this is a, a, a so-called. Uh, this is an indefinite passive by itself, but it would be an example of so-called divine passive. God is clearly the implied active subject. Uh, Esau is rejected by God, and correlative to that, um, he could not. He found no place for repentance. Now that raises some interesting um, uh, translation questions as to exactly what the force is. The NIV, if, if, if you have it, you'll see has, he could bring about no change of mind. Found no place for repentance. Uh, and that's possible. I think though syntactically, uh, the Altain here refers back not to, to the... Um, to the repentance, but to the blessing. Uh, he could find no place for repentance, even though 
He sought it with tears. The it is not repentance. So I think the picture, uh, I think you have to be careful, the picture here is not of, uh, of poor Esau trying to repent, but being unable to repent. But uh, he wants repentance because, or the repentance he has in mind is connected with the blessing that he wants. And that would certainly be consonant with the Old Testament narrative. Yeah, well, I, I think you could keep that. I, I still wonder about the NIV translation. I think. Uh, yeah, the, okay, that's another problem. I think, I think if you want to translate the way the NIV does, you, you, you want at the same time... Um, how does the NIV translate the rest of the sentence? Uh, no, right to the end of verse uh, 17, just beyond what you translated. Yeah, well, see, they have it right. Yeah, see, they have um, the blessing as the, uh, as the antecedent. Well, you, you, you don't. Strictly syntactically, you don't. And in fact, uh, from pure syntactical consideration, it would more likely be this, as, as nearer. But, yes. Right. But it, it, there, there's, no, there's no syntactical problem with referring it this way, and, and then it becomes more the, uh, the sense of the immediate context, and here you have an Old Testament uh, context to, to consult. Um, and then further in verse 25, uh, we have again the a fortiori argument with the polu, the polu malon, the how much more of the New Testament. Um, so the point here, um, uh, if you couldn't escape from judgment under the old covenant in resisting the word of God, uh, how much more is it the case that there is no escape from judgment under the new So those efforts uh, to try to pinpoint, we may have overlooked uh, something along the way, but I think we've gotten the, the main dimensions of what we uh, could describe as the, as, as, the, as the outcome. So we've seen uh, advantages, response, and outcome as, as part of the, of the total situation. Now, um, a second, and very briefly, let's notice the dilemma the dilemma with which we are presented. Uh, and it's a dilemma that has theological as well as pastoral dimensions. We can put that in the form of a uh, question, first of all, to try to capture, to focus the dilemma. How can it be now that the new covenant people of God are warned in this way how can it be that the whole church or at the least those who are seen to be a part of the church are addressed, admonished in this way? Or to put the question another way, is it possible for believers to turn away from Christ? Is it possible for believers to lose their faith? Is it possible for a believer to become an unbeliever? or with a more explicit reference to uh, doctrinal categories, 
What in the light of these passages, if we have um, dealt with them properly so far, what becomes of the doctrine of perseverance? Or the preservation, as some prefer to say, of the saints. The question again, how is it possible that those who have received the kind of blessings that are described in these passages, and they are gospel blessings, they are covenant blessings and provisions. How is it possible for such um, who, who have, um, for, for it to be said then of such people, not only do they lose these blessings, but also you see that loss is irreversible, is irreparable, can't be remedied. And by the way, just let me just say in, in, in passing here, uh, this, 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 this irreversible situation is, is one that so often gets missed in the uh, discussion. Uh, and as you may be aware, very often uh, the so-called Arminian position wishes to appeal to this passage. I think of an article, uh, article on the passage by um, my uh, friend... Um, Uh, what's his name? Teaches at Trinity Seminary in in um, in the anthro- the the an- the, um, the Armenian Manifesto that's been edited and put out by uh, Clark Pennock. Um, can't think of his name. He teaches New Testament. Not Don Carson, but uh, um, uh, it'll it'll come to me. But he, he makes a big point of this passage. But you see, in our, uh, an Arminian position is absolutely no help here. Because where in an Arminian anthropology or soteriology is, is there a place for the kind of total inability now that is described in this passage? Where in an Arminian construction is there a, is there a place for the adunaton? expressed by the author. An Arminian uh, anthropology, uh, soteriology, has no place for that, uh, no more place for that than um, total depravity does in the Tula. Grant Osborne is a person. Um, or again, a, a question, uh, the question once again. How is the teaching of these passages compatible with teaching that we have elsewhere in Scripture? How is it consistent, for instance, with what Jesus himself says in John 6, verses 37 and 39? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and I shall lose none of all he has given me. So, that's the, uh, the, the issue we want to, I've tried to bring to as, as, as sharp a focus as I could for ourselves. In the third place, um, uh, Excuse me, I should stop here. Um, again, you're not going to draw me further on in the discussion, uh, but just on, on this whole matter of posing the dilemma or any comments or any, anything further anyone wants to, to 
Okay, we have a couple minutes. Let's uh, let's use them. Um, in the third place, I want to identify some proposed solutions uh, and making use, by the way, here uh, a fairly heavy use uh, of uh, Philip Hughes' commentary on the passage. Uh, particularly, you know, it's one of the strengths of Hughes' commentary, if you haven't looked at it, that he uh, is very much oriented uh, to pre-Reformation or even... Uh, ancient church exegesis. You get a lot of, uh, he's made a special point of looking at the, um, uh, the Greek and Latin fathers. And, and that's a dimension that his, apart from, 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 the, from the almost consistently sound uh, a commentator that he is, that's an added dimension of his work. So this is not so much reflective of some um, original research of, of my own, but what he's done and, and maybe supplemented a bit here or there. Um, so I'm calling these proposed solutions. You might add, as a footnote here, as I have in my notes, ways not to go in dealing with this passage. Um, there are um, a series of, well, and, and again, these, this isn't exhaustive at all either. 